read this morning's sermon text, and you can turn in your Bibles. I do hope uh, you have one with you to Psalm 133. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you this day, it's always uh, good to have one open in front of you as we study God's Word together, and you uh, can use one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you, and you'll find this morning's text on page 519 in our series through the Psalms of the Scent. This morning we come to the second to last in Psalm 133, a well-known psalm, one that brings us one of the chief ambitions and aspirations that belong to any gathering of God's people. And so let me simply read our text and pray for our study and then we'll begin together. So hear now as, as God does speak to you through his perfect word. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together once again. Father, we do rejoice that you speak to us through your word that is living and active, that is pure, that is perfect, that is powerful, and we ask that even your spirit would fill our minds and saturate our souls this day as we want to hear your truth and respond to it as you have commanded us to with, with faith and repentance, that we would receive this word with meekness, that I would preach it as you say I must with clarity and courage, help us to hear with earnestness, knowing that we have not been promised a single sermon after this one, that I have not been promised to preach another sermon after this one. So help us listen as a dying people. For me to preach as a dying man, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I would think with you for a few minutes here at the beginning about church business meetings. And I wonder what your experience has been, perhaps if you've grown up in the church, about church business meetings. Perhaps you have stories of meetings that were a blessing. Perhaps you have stories of meetings that were much more burning and perhaps even bad in their outcome. Years ago, I was serving at as a student pastor at a nearby church, and we went through a season of time where virtually every single business meeting seemed to be little more than a pitched battle and a spiritual war zone. And it was early in my ministry there that someone in the church, one of the leaders, recounted a story to me as a humorous way of kind of just inviting me into what was getting ready to happen in the business meeting that I've since seen and read and heard in other places. And the story goes something like this. That long ago, a church was attending its quarterly business meeting, and the moderator announced that the church had come to a place of uh, financial surplus, and so there was money around to be able to do something to the church building, bring updates, or perhaps assistance to people in need, and so he called out for ideas. Well, what should we do with the surplus? And immediately someone stood up and said, well, I, I move that we put a new chandelier in the church, and before even that motion was seconded, someone rose and stood to speak in opposition to the motion, stating, I have three reasons why we should not bring a chandelier into this place. The first of which is, no one can spell chandelier. <laughs> the second of which is, no one can play the chandelier. And third, we all know that we just need more light in this place. 
And it's a humorous story that's meant to illustrate a common reality in Christian churches. That when they gather together, too often there's bickering, there's difficulty, there's discouragement, division, chaos, and, and conflict, even over the most meaningless of things. And Psalm 133 is here today to tell you, brothers, sisters, this should not be so. It's here to tell you very simply about the beauty of unity. That's the theme that's given to us in our three simple verses along the way today. It's pointing us to what old theologians and preachers from century past would often announce, that outside of union and communion with God, there is nothing so glorious here on earth as union and communion with God's saints. And I wonder if you would agree with such sentiment or such a statement. That outside of communion with God, the only thing that's better on earth is communion with God's people. I would imagine that for some of you in the room today, you could regale us with stories of how that's been quite true in your Christian experience. That you know that Christian unity... In its purest form, it has a depth to it that even supersedes the unity and the familiarity that belongs to life as a husband or a wife, as a father, as a mother. It, it supersedes family ties even. Or, or you could come from a background, even perhaps recent in your own life, that your experience of life in the church has been little more than one of constant strife, one of constant struggles. So how could it be true that outside of communion with God, the greatest thing on earth is communion with God's people? Well, what we want to see today is what the Spirit is doing. If you think about Psalm 133 as something like a portrait of biblical unity, which is a fair way of thinking about it, all, all the Spirit seems to want to do is just with a few simple, significant strokes of his biblical paintbrush, is just give us a portrait of what unity looks like with such a compelling force and joy and celebration attached to it that we too might be able to leave today saying outside of communion with God, there's nothing better than communion with the saints. So if you notice, glance down to the three verses that I trust are in front of you. It comes in three parts. First, you get an affirmation about unity. Secondly, in verse 2 through the first part of verse 3, you get two illustrations about unity. And then we find out the end of verse 3, the location of unity. So... I've got three simple words to guide us along the way. I trust easily today, sweet, spiritual, and sovereign. So students, that's what you want to think about when it comes to unity. Sweet, spiritual, and sovereign. The first thing you need to see is unity is a sweet blessing. Look again at how our text begins. The command, behold. Now, you always want to pause right there because students, you can easily pass by the times in God's word, when we're commanded to behold something. But it's meant to have this really majestic and wonderful force. It's as though what the Holy Spirit is doing is he's grabbing you by the shoulders, firmly and looking into your face and saying, you need to see this. Don't miss this. It's too good to forget about. Well, behold what? How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And it's important to recognize that we're told actually at the psalm's beginning that David wrote this psalm. So kids, can you think about times in David's life, if you know King David's life well enough, can you think of times when things were hard for David? Uh, surely many of you know the story of King David to such a degree that you know that strife and division seem to be his normal experience in life. You know, King Saul's trying to pierce him against the wall with a spear. And his son Absalom 
you know, rips out the kingdom, steals its heart from under his very gaze. It's as though he seems to go from one local war to a civil war to a family war. So therefore, as someone that knew, certainly a degree of strife and division being constant, he says, but isn't it amazing? Isn't it wonderful when brothers dwell together in unity? So wonderful, so beautiful, so amazing that he gives us these two modifiers, doesn't he? It's good and pleasant. He's actually exalting in unity to such a degree that depending on translation, the original says how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. So did you know that it's possible for something to be good and pleasant? I'm sure, kids, that we could think of things perhaps in life that are good but not pleasant. Or pleasant but not good. For example, when I was growing up, one of the house rules in the home of my youth was every single stone child got to pick one dish that they didn't have to eat no matter when it was served and where it was served. (laughs) My older sister, still to my continuing confusion, selected spaghetti sauce as what she was never going to eat because at the time, evidently, we had lots of spaghetti meals and she didn't want it. And I picked something and I selected something that perhaps is more understandable why a child would select it. And it was squash because evidently in the, uh, uh, yeah, certainly for a few years it felt as though squash casserole was this relative staple in the house. And some of you enjoy it, but I don't enjoy it myself still to this day. It's possible. You can invite me to come over and people will ask about allergies and Emily might respond, just no squash, is what Jordan says. Well, we know, don't we, that squash is good for you. But many of us might not think it's pleasant There are things, aren't there, that are pleasant but not good for you. Uh, What David's telling us here is that unity is both good and pleasant. It's meant to hopefully underscore for us just the incredible joy and the rejoicing, the celebration that belongs when people dwell together in unity. You can say it's both good and pleasant. So let's think for just a minute then about this word, this central idea in the passage of unity. So what is unity? Certainly, it's something that all of us can perhaps know intuitively, experientially, but may find it difficult to define it with a certain number of words. It's probably important for us to recognize that there are things that sometimes are understood to be true about unity that aren't. So maybe you want to think for just a minute about two things that unity isn't. The first thing you need to see is that unity is not uniformity. Uh, That would simply mean that a gathering of people who are all alike... It's little more than a gathering of people who are something like spiritual clones. You know, kids, it's true, the Bible tells us that when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, you are enlisted into the Lord's army. But the Lord's army isn't like an army of stormtroopers in Star Wars where everyone looks the same, walks the same, acts the same. It's people of different ages, of different backgrounds, racial, cultural, economical differences and various perspectives. It's not uniformity. The number two thing you want to see that unity isn't is unity is not above truth. And it's an important thing to recognize in perhaps even our unique context in which congregations and denominations in our time will often say, well, our goal is to be unified. But so often, if you just kind of simply stare a little bit longer at that goal, you realize what it is a little more than let's push the truth aside and then we'll be unified. 
Uh, you might know that the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 17 prayed that we as his people would be one as he and the Father are one. And it's only a few verses later, isn't it, that he says that holiness of unity, it comes through the truth. That we're united in the truth. We're united insofar as we agree on and understand what is true. And so true unity then is found, of course, in the truth of who Jesus Christ is. Because it's who Jesus Christ is that can bind together people that are different in politics, in cultural perspective, conscience, convictions, personal preferences. Unity is good and pleasant when it's rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Even something that we might want to call sweet. Unity is a sweet blessing. You want to see secondly in verse 2 and 3, unity is a spiritual blessing. Because what he does in verse 2 and 3 is give us two simple, at least according to his ancient context, two simple illustrations about how good and pleasant unity is. But for those of us living in the 21st century, the illustrations and analogies might fall flat if we don't understand the original context. You see verse 2 tells us, number one, it's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. Earlier this week, I was reading about the early ministry of an English preacher named Charles Spurgeon. He was known as the boy wonder of the time. Such was his pulpit power and his eloquence in preaching. But I was reading about just kind of the background of the English culture at the time when he kind of came to prominence in the nation. And interestingly enough, I discovered that it was in the 1850s that barbers in England waged war on what they called, quote, the barbarism of the razor. And all that means is, is that they stopped shaving men's faces. They began to perpetuate the fashion of the beard. And it was in this time that Spurgeon came to pulpit power. He was the boy wonder and wanting to make himself look somewhat older, he began to grow a beard. And according to the fashionable face of the time, he somewhat humorously said, yet I think genuine to his personality, said that for a man to grow a beard, it's the most natural, spiritual, manly, and beneficial thing for him to do. And you look at Aaron's beard, don't you, in verse 2. And kids, you might think, what's so beneficial and natural about this allusion to oily beards and the goodness and the pleasure of unity? Well, of course, you need to remember who Aaron was. Who is he? The original high priest of God's people. He's the one that represents God's people to the holy Yahweh. The one makes atonement for their sins. The one even set apart, consecrated to the work of being a priest. By what? The anointing of oil upon his head. So if you were an original Israelite listening to this psalm, singing this psalm. Of course, you would think about this idea that we are represented before God. That there is forgiveness of our sins. That atonement can be found in the blood shed by the priests of God's people. Not only would oil running down Aaron's beard have been a sight that was pleasurable. It would have been a smell that was pleasurable. As the book of Exodus tells us, that oil was uniquely precious and fragrant in its recipe. It was like the best oil you could have in all of Israel at the time. And it's important to recognize, verse 2 tells us, it's not just part of Aaron's head or, or beard, is it, that has this running stream of oil. That seems to paint the picture almost like this river of oil flowing down Aaron. Which surely is meant to help us understand that when it comes to Christian unity, when it comes to peace and togetherness within the life of God's people, it doesn't belong to just kind of tiny quadrants or crevices or a few corners in the church. It's meant to cover everything that the church does. 
cover the entirety of its gathering, that there would be unity like oil on Aaron's beard. But you see number two, the illustration, verse three, it's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. My kids, I don't know if you like dew on the ground. If you're anything like my children, you probably don't. You know, earlier this week, we had some humid mornings, and I remember one in particular, I'd, I'd come and told the kids at some point mid-morning, oh, what are you guys doing still inside? It's a beautiful day, why don't you go outside and play? And, and one of them quickly quipped, no, it's too dewy out there. You know, we're going we're gonna to get wet, and everything we're going to bring is going to be wet out there too. But for an ancient Israelite, the dew of Mount Hermon was glorious. It's a dry and parched land, this majestic mountain in the north. It was as though its dew would then water the earth nearby it, bringing refreshment to that which was parched, that which was cracked. And again, it's trying to underscore for us, isn't it? In that original context, unity is good. It is pleasant. It's like oil, and it's like dew. Can you think of something, better said, can you think of someone in the Bible that is depicted with images of oil and dew. What's the Holy Spirit, isn't it? You see this all throughout the Old Testament, that the anointing of oil is representative of the Spirit's consecration of an individual. The Spirit's setting apart someone for the Lord's service. So if you came back tonight in our evening service, we're going to, Lord willing, read through 1 Samuel chapter 16. It's there, Samuel anoints David's head with oil. And immediately after, what we're told is, the Spirit of the Lord rushed on him from that day forward. All throughout the Old Testament, oil then associated with the power and the presence of the Spirit, but at the same time, dew associated with the Spirit. As Hebrews 14 verse 5 tells us, God promises to cover his people like dew on the ground. He says, I will become dew to my people as the Spirit showers forth his blessings upon the church. So what then is true about unity is not only that it's sweet, it's spiritual, it belongs to the Holy Spirit's work within us. Because you can think about the ancient Israelites as they would have been singing this psalm, making those kind of annual pilgrimages up towards the heavenly city, that earthly mountain of Zion, the city of Jerusalem, from different tribes, from different regions, from different walks of life, all singing this psalm about the unity that they have in the Lord, preparing their hearts to worship God. And isn't it a wonderful thing that we too might find Psalm 133 be this soundtrack for Sundays. For what are we doing? From various walks of life, experiences, perspectives, backgrounds, gathering in one place to worship the Lord together, to bow before our common King. How good and pleasant it is when we know that unity is sweet, that it's spiritual, and finally that it's sovereign. It's a sovereign blessing we see at the end of of our text. I thought this week about this old two-line poem that sometimes you'll find thrown into commentaries on Christian unity. And it says something like, to live with the saints above whom we love. That's the glory. But to live with the saints below, well, that's another story. And again, that might be your perspective Oh yes, it's supposed to be this heavenly reality, but my earthly experience is actually far from that. But notice, it's a sovereign blessing. It comes from the Lord himself. It's not something we can generate or initiate. He says, David does at the beginning part of verse 3 near the end, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing. See, first of all, 
God's place of blessing. Students, where's the there? Well, it's the mountains of Zion, isn't it? It's there in the holy city of God. It's there in Jerusalem that God commands the blessing. Uh, He's the one that brings it, of course. The pouring out of the Spirit alone can bind us together in unity, affection, peace, and, and togetherness. That this is something that belongs to God's sovereign initiative. That's what you want to see, of course. Secondly, not just the place, but the prerogative for there the Lord has commanded the blessing. There's actually this, this wonderful imagery attached to the language here in Psalm 133 that can be easy to miss if your translation doesn't capture it right because in verses 2 and 3 you have these three occasions where the original language is speaking about uh, unity running down. It's, it's running down like oil on Aaron's beard. It's running down like oil on Aaron's collar. It's running down like dew on the mountains of Hermon. And it's meant to depict for us the, the sovereign pleasure and prerogative of God that his desire that his people dwell in unity runs us down. Isn't that a wonderful thing to think about, God's kindness and grace and mercy? That he desires for his people to know how good and pleasant it is, that he's going to send his spirit to run us down, to tie us together, to bind us and knit us together in peace. And you'll see the text ends with the blessing itself, life forevermore. It's eternal life, isn't it? Contained in communion. I'm sure that you know that there can be times in life when a lack of unity does kind of feel like death. You know, you could go into a home that is full of constant strife and conflict. It feels as though it is this kind of war zone that's absent of life and the spirit. Uh, you can find it true, can't you, of nations that are so full of division and bickering. It's just a grave to anything that could possibly be good. Isn't it so sad that you could walk into a local Christian congregation, and maybe you've even seen this before, as, as you walk in, and maybe it's the first time visiting there, and you think to yourself upon leaving, perhaps even you've used words before like it, well, that place seemed dead. And if you just kind of peeled behind the curtain of that church's experience, you would know that it's just constant strife. Constant grumbling, constant bickering, and it actually kind of feels dead. When in reality, what the Spirit is meant to do upon us as He's sovereignly poured out within our midst is to bind us together with the blessing of life. But here it is life evermore, because what is eternal life but communion? Union with the triune God, seeing the King in all of His glory. What is coming to Jesus Christ in faith but the promise of eternal life? Life evermore, not just finally, fully freed and forgiven of our sin. It's now in perfect harmony, God's people dwelling together with one another. Now, the soul doesn't, it every human soul, it longs for peace. It longs for this sweet spiritual and, and sovereign unity. You see, it comes, of course, only through the commanded blessing of, of life forevermore, life that's found in, in Jesus Christ. I wonder if you know this spirit of unity, this beauty of unity. Do we know this beauty of, of unity? For a number of years now, I've had something of a, a side fascination with the study of, of monasteries. And the reason why is it's genuinely impossible to understand church history if you don't understand the monks. And what you may not know about the monastic movement is that its principal text for its formation was Psalm 133. 
How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. There was one of the ancient historians, Jerome, that said that the monasteries began because you couldn't find harmony in local church assemblies. So we had to go out and create it in the desert. And isn't it a sad thing that you might find the same thing to be true so many centuries later that you walk into a local church, you walk into perhaps a congregation like this, and I, I, I pray that it couldn't be true of us, but maybe someone would say, I've got to look for unity elsewhere because it can't be found there. Well, if we're obedient to Christ's command, if we are faithful to the Lord's word unto us, this would be a place where the beauty of unity is enjoyed, it's experienced. And as we close, let me just mention two simple observations that we might see that beauty, that sweetness continue to grow in our midst. The first thing, of course, Psalm 133 calls us to is to repent of our strife and division. If it's this good, if it's this pleasant, if it's this glorious, what have you maybe done recently, perhaps even years past, but it's unrepented of, to disturb the peace of the church? It's so easy, isn't it, to take, if you will, this ship that is the congregation sailing through calm waters, blessed waters of unity, and all of a sudden just seemingly crash it into a coral beneath because of complaint and criticism ingratitude or grumbling. How often it is that a church has been destroyed through disunity. We even mentioned last week in the evening sermon, wasn't it, that there's someone that, that I know, a pastor who says more churches have been destroyed by, by grumbling than false teaching. And I said last week, it's hard to know how you could ever measure such a thing, but maybe your experience and observations kind of like mine, and that seems to be true that many churches are destroyed internally more than they are destroyed externally by forces of falsehood. Maybe there's a place in your life where you need to repent of a sentence you uttered that could never be unspoken, that destroyed unity. Sometimes, isn't it true that we will throw, if you will, a spiritual haymaker against the harmony of the church, simply just writing off something that could never be unseen. Repent of division and strife. Number two, Recognize. Recognize the center of true unity. Uh, we want, to, of course, to repent of the sin, the way in which we have fallen short of God's precious and perfect command, and we want to recognize where true unity is found. I thought about this last week as after the morning service, one of the church members stopped me and was just telling me with a smile on his face about just kind of what he's watching happen in recent years at Redeemer. And he said, you know, just a few Sundays back, I was staring around at the church. I think it was probably during communion. And he just was altogether amazed by all these people that he had never seen before. And then next week, he looked around at the same time, more people that he's never seen before. And he said, why do you think they're all coming here? And I said, well, why do you think? And he said, I don't know. It's not as though we're doing anything special here. And I had many thoughts. And I just simply said, you know, I pray it's true that perhaps people come here and stick here because Jesus Christ is here. Because you know it's true, don't you, that churches can try to effect unity through a musical style, through decorations and vestments, through approaches to apologetics, political orientations, stances toward the culture. And those things can for a time seemingly unify but they're not meant to unify. The true gospel glue that belongs to life in Jesus Christ is that He is meant to be the unity, that magnetic center around which our life revolves. For of course, verse 3 again, it's there the Lord has commanded His blessing. 
Zion, where Christ is seated on high. He who is our life at the right hand of God. It's, it's there that true unity is found. So insofar as the Lord continues to sustain us and equip us and, and help us to be faithful, to preach Jesus Christ, to, as we gather, enjoy the fellowship of faith in Jesus Christ through ordinary means of grace, enjoying his presence among us, we can have a smile on our face, trusting it will be good and pleasant among us as we experience that sweet, that spiritual, that sovereign unity that becomes from our triune God alone. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would sustain us in the midst of our life together to know what it is to dwell in unity. That we might be obedient to your command to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And we do pray this simple prayer in the name of our Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. Amen.